Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And every year there is a fantastic event called University Press Week. And every year we talk to the president of the Association of University Presses about University Press Week. And today I'm very pleased to say that we have Charles Watkinson on the show. And he is the head of the University of Michigan Press and is now the uh, head or president of the Association of University Presses. So welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you, Marshall. It's good to be here. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, I'm part of University of Michigan Press, which is a, a mid-sized university press. It uh, reports to University of Michigan Library, and that's actually a reporting relationship to a library that's shared by about 40% of our members uh, now. Um, but my background is in very small university presses uh, or in small scholarly presses, uh, the American School of Classical Studies at Athens and Purdue University Press. And that's where I uh, find my inspiration. It's actually in the smaller members. Uh, about 60 of our members are very small presses indeed. And uh, that's my my background and my kind of uh, focus. Well, we should uh, just dig- president. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. We should just digress for a moment because I don't think people really know about what st- statisticians would call the distribution of size of university presses. There are these behemoths, Oxford, and Cambridge are the two largest of them. Chicago, they're enormous, and they pump out books. But then there is a vast field, over 100 smaller university presses that make up the, the sort of the most of your constituency, right? Yeah. And how many members are there, like 150 or something? So there are 158. Uh-huh. Uh, that number keeps increasing, but 158 as we talk. And it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, one tends to think, um, because you see them in the sort of New York Times and so on, uh, most often, of the uh, of the what we call Group Four presses, the very large presses. But over fifty percent of our membership is uh, Group 
one presses, and those are presses with revenue under $1.5 million. And they're extremely distributed. Um, they're doing really unique and interesting things. Sometimes they absolutely hit the big time. Uh, the uh, West Virginia University Press um, has been in all the prize prizes, all the media recently. But a lot of the time, what they're doing is really distinctive regional publishing, very embedded um, in their regions. And then the other thing is an increasing uh, number of our members are international. So uh, only a hundred of our members would self-identify as university presses, for example. Uh, we have learned societies, we have museum publishers, uh, and we now have members uh, in uh, Austria, uh, the UK, Australia. Um, our newest member actually is University of Guam Press, so on the far edges, um, uh, uh, you know, from west to east. So mm -hmm. it's 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 it, it's a very it's a very diverse group of presses. It's it's not it's not unified at all, really. Yeah, yeah. What one of the things that interested me in what you said is that we we have launched uh, the New Books Network in Espanol. And so we're working with people that publish uh, what we would call academic books in Spanish. They don't call themselves university presses ever. <laughs> and I didn't know this. Um, they're, they're usually run by colleges or libraries or universities, but they don't have the same university press infrastructure, or at least they don't brand themselves in the same way as I, I would say their American counterpart or, or British counterpart. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, by becoming a university press, one is committing to certain uh, rules, as it were, certain norms. And uh, that is uh, how we define ourselves as an mm -hmm. association, that uh, for membership, you have to you know, make commitments to peer review, uh, to uh, having an editorial board. Um, to, uh, uh, but there are many, many really interesting scholarly presses that aren't university presses and often aren't nonprofits. Many really, really distinctive and important scholarly presses are uh, are organized on a for-profit basis. So uh, they barely make a profit, but yeah. <laughs> they're organized yeah, well, that let, side of the tax code. Yeah, let, let me give a shout out to one of them, and I don't mean to pick just one, but we work with Brill. And, and the thing about Brill, and I was a medievalist, early modernist. The thing about Brill is they publish things nobody else will publish. Extremely valuable, but there's not a lot of money in the kind of things that they publish. But they do an absolutely great job. I, I can say that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, especially in my area as well, which is uh, historically archaeology, classics, medieval studies. I mean, there are so many small publishers uh, uh, working in those fields, Brill being one of them, but uh, relatively small publishers. Um, and uh, they kind of get overlooked sometimes. Um, uh, but it's uh, they're absolutely core to the discipline. So Yeah, no, yeah. Th th this is definitely true uh, of my discipline, which is medieval and early modern Russian studies, is that you find a lot of books that were not published by uh, university presses, but were published by these, I don't know whether to call them boutique or or what. Uh, sometimes they're published by scholarly societies, which also sometimes produce books, but they're, they're not likely to be hits, but they're very important for the people in the disciplines. And one thing I should say is that uh, multilingualism is such an interesting area. Um, there are, of course, a lot of university presses in Spain. Um, there are a lot of university presses in Latin America. 
some of them are members of our association, but we tend to be pretty heavily Anglophone, and yeah. that's something that we would like to change. Yeah, well, we would too, which is why we opened the New Books Network in Espanol, because you know these people produce really serious scholarship, and we thought they should have the benefit of something like the New Books Network for Spanish-speaking people. And there are not a few Spanish-speaking people in the world. There are a lot of Spanish-speaking people in the world. So yeah, this is something that we're we're very interested in as well. Um, let let me ask you a a, a a a kind of general question. I don't know how you would. I, I'm trying to think how you would answer it. I don't know. But uh, what's the state of University Press publishing today? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's remarkably healthy. Um, uh, one of the things that's so exciting is this diversity of uh, publishers who are you know, becoming self-identifying as university presses uh, in the UK. And I'm from the UK originally, as you can tell. Mm. Um, there has been an absolute proliferation of new university presses over the last few years. Um, uh, a couple of days ago, Aberdeen University Press launched. Uh, Scottish Universities Press has just launched. Uh, I, I mean, every day there's new university press. Uh, so that uh, is a really interesting moment that we're getting a lot of membership applications at the moment. Um, so diversity, uh, increasing uh, number of um, group uh, you know, university presses. Um, I think there's also a very strong commitment within our membership to trying to do better as organizations. I think we've experienced over the last two years a real uh, reckoning with uh, you know, questions such as, you know, work-life balance, uh, what we expect of staff, um, how incredibly white um, and uh, uh, able um, as opposed to disabled our um, uh, staff are in our presses and how we can do better in being a more diverse, more um, more pleasant pleasant environment to work work in uh in our organization so there's a lot of self-examination and that's making us better and then i i, I think the, the third thing is always going to be the market right and the fact that university presses do all to a lesser or greater degree rely on revenue i mean there's a lot of turbulence in the various different market segments that university presses sell into uh i mean we've seen a fantastic um proliferation of people reading. So the trade market is very positive for university presses that are heavy on trade books. But um, it's really, really complicated in the textbook space, a lot of change. And it's always been precarious and complicated in the monograph space. So there's a lot of change there. And journals are being very affected by open access, for example. So it's a very turbulent market. And uh, I think we're trying to navigate um, th those changes like other publishers are doing. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I was thinking about when I started the New Books Network was quite literally helping authors and publishers reach new audiences, because it is so frequently the case that people just don't know about these books. And I don't know, that, that's not really anybody's fault. I'd also like to digress, but probably won't, on how understaffed many university presses are. They, they, there's a very few people doing a lot of work. And, and I don't think people realize this because I work with them, you know, quite frequently and, and it, they work hard. I can tell you that absolutely. But since you mentioned uh, the market, um, one of the things I think people would be interested to know is uh, 
how university press books are priced. Because you often hear this complaint, oh gosh, I would love to read this book, but it's $120. Um, how are they priced? Is there, a, is there a few sentences you can say that would be true about this or is it just too complicated to explain? <laughs> No, it's I, it, it's not. I think there are a couple of things that are, um, you know, relevant to that question. I mean, one is exactly what you just mentioned, which is the cost of labor. So, the cost of labor is going up uh, in all sectors of the economy, and uh, university press publishing is very labor intensive. It involves a lot of steps that uh, larger commercial publishers don't take. Uh, uh, so clearly. Uh, you know, peer review is important, and there's uh, you know peer review of proposals, there's peer review of whole manuscripts, um, peer reviewers are paid on honoraria, and so on. But that's not exactly the core of university press publishing. The core is the acquisitions editor's role, and uh, university press acquisitions editors spend a lot of time and effort cultivating particular disciplines, and a lot of their time is spent actually working with authors who will eventually decide not to publish with that university press, um, but really helping them, coaching them, helping them to get better. If I could just um, interrupt you right there, I, I've had, I've personally, I've published several university press books and books with commercial presses and books with um, what I call boutique academic presses. And I have had this experience of having a university sp press spend a lot of time on my book. And then I didn't publish it with them. <laughs> <laughs> which made me feel bad but <laughs> so on on the one hand we hate you uh, but, on, on, <laughs> but on the other hand that's our job right i mean so ultimately what university presses are committed to is the is a healthy ecosystem for scholarship because we're part of universities that's what we care about and so that role of developing the author um is incredibly core to what we believe. And so it's really about process rather than product a lot of the time. So anyhow, so this is a very long way of saying there's a lot of labor that goes into university press publishing. And that means that often the cost to produce a book is higher than potentially it might be at a commercial publisher. Um, the other thing that's part of this equation is actually uh, nowadays costs of materials. And this is particularly true of print books. So what we are seeing is we're seeing paper becoming more expensive. We're seeing a contraction in the number of printers. We're seeing logistics costs increasing. So if one is surprised at prices being higher this year than they were a couple of years ago, that's also a contributing factor. Um, and then, of course, you know, one of the parts of this is uh, prices are set uh, a lot to do with how many copies are expected to be sold. And in many cases, the number of specialist academic uh, uh, copies that are sold has gone down over the years. So this is really true of monographs. It's not so true of trade books. And overall, I think you will see, uh, if you look at the annual pricing surveys, that university press books remain substantially cheaper than uh, commercial academic books. So it's not all bad news. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is true. I, I don't know what the average is, but I, 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 when I was a professor, I would sometimes pay $30 for a book and sometimes I paid 120. I, I was willing to bear that cost ah. because it was that important to me to have this book. And to go back to your point about labor, 
I don't know how many listeners will understand exactly how much labor goes into one of these books. I mean, on a complete accounting, you would have to include the amount of time and effort it took to train the person that wrote it. <laughs> That's years and years. <laughs> and then, of course, you have the book itself, and it has to be copy edited. First, it has to go through review, and then peer reviewers. It has to be copy edited. Then it has to be produced. You have to have a graphic artist design a cover. Then it has to be distributed to all of the distributors there are distribution companies that do that this is all labor intensive and then once you actually get the final book into the market it has to be marketed and you know so on and so forth and just to go back to your point about paper i mean i worked as a russian historian and there are ways to cut costs on paper and what the russians did is they produced their books on well this was a long time ago i don't know if they do it anymore but they produced it on very acidic paper those books are not in good shape and yeah. I mean, they I, I they are not going to survive. Uh, and these are important books that they produced on high asset paper, and they're not going to make it. Yeah, and 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 also, I mean, absolutely, there are costs. There are ways to reduce the cost of labor, hundred percent. And that's what you see the big commercials doing. You know, um, they will outsource almost everything that they do, but that is at the, at the expense of care, and uh, the concept of care and um, really caring about the experience of the author, caring about the quality of the book, the, you know, uh, the, the paper quality, things like that, the quality of the digital version, whether it's fully accessible, things like that. It all takes time. And the, uh, there certainly are potential ways of reducing the cost of publishing. There are lots of ways of reducing the cost of publishing, but it is always at the expense of care. Yeah. And, you know, that's a no, trade-off. I, I, I agree completely. And I, I forget exactly who it was, but I was working with a publisher once and a, an academic publisher. And she said, we're going to shepherd your book. I like that word, shepherd like your that. book. <laughs> and they held my hand all the way, you know, and it cost them a fortune. And they send me a royalties check every year, which is nice. Um, so you talk about ways to uh, cut costs. Um, one of them for the consumer is to produce your books open access. That makes them free to the end user. But of course, they aren't free to produce <laughs> in any way. Uh, so uh, I, th I think people have a kind of misunderstanding of open access. Can you talk about what role you see open access playing now and what role will it play? Do you want it to play in university press publishing? Yeah, this is one of the biggest um, disruptive forces in uh, university press published. And I think our membership has very different views on this. And it really tends to connect back to the types of books they publish. So if you're primarily a trade publisher, or you're publishing uh, creative works, for example, um, open access is not really affecting you at this stage. But for any of us who are uh, actually, you know, really working on academic books or academic journals, there are these big new policies coming into play. Uh, there is a real shift in expectations from our authors. Uh, and we've learned a lot over the pandemic about the untapped readership for these very specialist works, which were often assumed to be, you know, there'll just be a few hundred people in the world who are interested. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. There are thousands of people in the world who show that they're interested once the book is available as a free electronic file. But to your point about cost, I mean, the costs lie in labor. Uh, so the labor to produce a high quality open access book, they're the same. 
mm-hmm. as producing a high quality uh, restricted access book. And the cost of print on top of that, uh, you know, that's very marginal compared to the cost of labor. So absolutely there are costs. And it's it's really the question at the moment of a bit of a tension between uh, the funders of open access initiatives who have every incentive to try and spend as little as possible on them and that business about the ethics of care, the tradition of university press publishing that is so labor intensive and costly. And those two factors, those two forces are kind of running into uh, uh, into some tension at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, I know people will sometimes say kind of casually, well, if the institution or the author or anybody related to it received any, let's say the United States federal money, then it has to be open access. That's pretty much everybody. <laughs> that's everyone <laughs> yes so it, it, it just doesn't make sense to think about it that way because it, yes. everyone receives federal money at some point and they may receive it indirectly but they're getting it so i mean i get the argument but practically speaking i don't think they get you very far in terms of producing books it's a really interesting point you make because i think this is a uh a... A, a tidal wave that's really going to hit university presses in a big way. I'm not sure we're all ready for this, which is, you know, there's this new uh, uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy memo from the Biden government. And for the first time, it really does cover NEH. And the National Endowment for the Humanities, you're absolutely right. At some stage in every hu- humanist's life, it's so likely that any yeah, funding is to help you're them. You're going to get some sort of money from them, and uh, you know the, the the idea. So this is a this is an immediate open access memo. It would apply to book chapters as well as to journal articles, um, and it would come into force in in 2025. Um, and it will remain to see how NEH actually articulates what funding they have given is in scope and what isn't in scope because it may be that not all their funding programs the recipients are required to publish open yeah, access that, 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 but that, it could be huge could yeah be that, huge. That, that'll be very tricky to kind of work out because clearly we don't want to break the bank at the presses i mean they're 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 businesses i'm, I'm doing air quotes that doesn't work very well in uh in audio but they are businesses <laughs> and they have to cover their costs and giving book books away is probably not a great way to do it, um, unless there is some other funding for it. So it, 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 there needs to be some way to fund these things, so that the university presses can continue to do what they do. Yeah, I I think it's interesting uh, the uh, the that they are they are businesses bit. I mean, university presses were not founded to be businesses. Um, they were founded to maximize access to. Uh, the best scholarship they've become businesses over the years but whether there is an opportunity actually to return to uh maybe a more authentic uh uh vision of the university press is primarily being about knowledge to mm-hmm. improve democracy and debate and culture that's an interesting opportunity here so i don't think it's all danger uh, will robinson yeah, I, you know, on the open access you. side yeah, but I mean, having founded the New Books Network and running it, and it is a business, we have to cover our costs. There are three people right. who work here. They need to eat. And so we actually have to do things to make sure we can continue to provide the service we do. Um, you know, I don't know if the federal government came and said, you were going to give you this amount of money to do it. I'd be like, well, okay, maybe I think about that. Um, but the bottom line is the bottom line. You, you have to pay people and they have to be able to eat. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, and you know, 
university press people are not paid very much. No, they're uh, not. <laughs> uh, especially, especially at the early career level. And that's been a concern. So definitely, yeah, not, not, not cutting cutting into areas which are already very, very tight uh, right, is important. Right. Yeah, uh, uh, actually, Jack Matlock, the last ambassador to the Soviet Union, I, I happened to know him a bit, and he said something to me once that I thought was very wise. It really struck me. He said, Marshall, you can't ask people to do things they can't do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm like, yes. yeah, that's, that's right. You can't. That doesn't make any sense. Um, I will say this, though, to go back to your point about distribution. One of the things we've seen on the New Books Network is when we have an open access book and we put it in the blog post and the show notes that go out to the apps, it gets downloaded a million times. I mean, it's astounding. Yeah. You know, it, it really is remarkable. How, it, the, it it is yeah. remarkable. It is remarkable. And, and one of the things that uh, we're finding is that's not that you, people say downloads. Yeah, what does that mean? But we also actually on our open access books, we have a little pop up survey, and it says if you enjoy this book, we'd love some feedback. And it it is real people. So yeah. we just had a you know response from uh, a reader of uh, for a Japanese poetry book, a reader in India. So as I, I'm a teacher, high school teacher. I'm on the border of uh, India and Pakistan. And I just was so grateful to be able to follow my first love, which is Japanese poetry. That's funny you mentioned that because I had the same experience on the New Books Network. We published a book that was open access and uh, a, a woman, and I believe she was a woman, maybe a man, I don't know which, uh, in rural Pakistan wrote me a note of appreciation saying, yes. thank you for doing this. I never would have, A, known about this book, B, been able to hear an interview about it, and C, I got the book. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm like, this Perfect. is why I do this work. <laughs> that, that right yeah. here. Yeah. That's, um, that's a very interesting question, that overlapped in open access and purchasing print. Uh, we have a study within AU Presses happening at the moment, led by uh, John Shearer, at UNC Press and Eric Van Ryan at California. And it's exactly on that question. What's the impact of making stuff open on print sales? Yeah. Especially if there's an affordable paperback edition. Right. That could be really interesting. Yeah. And I might buy it. You know, I really might. Yeah. Because, you know, you want to have it on the shelf. It's a little bit. I, I don't know how people feel about reading books online. I quite like it. Um, but I, 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 might, I might buy the book. I, I really, oh, yeah. I, I, really I, might. I, I I bought open access books in print. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have to. Let's let's shift gears just a little bit. We talked about careers in in um, university press publishing. What uh, advice would you give for people that wanted to have careers in university press publishing? Because I do get contacted occasionally by people who say, you know, I might like to work in the book industry. Um, usually, they ask me for a job. <laughs> I don't, we don't have any jobs, but I say, you know, I, I I introduce them to someone at a press saying, well, they can talk to you about it. Can you talk a little bit about how you'd begin a, a career in university publishing, university press publishing? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think the number one piece of advice is uh, to visit a, a resource that the association runs uh, called Ask Up, Ask UP. Um, and that is uh, designed for authors, but it's also especially designed for a career, uh, uh, people interested in the career. And that can connect people to a number of resources. Um, and we've got some very interesting initiatives happening around uh, peer mentoring at the moment uh, uh, that can be found through that resource. Um, and we're really, really interested also in making the skills much more transparent, the skills, the experience that are needed 
by the university press sector, much more transparent. And we have at the moment a task force on, sounds boring, doesn't it? Task force, yeah. I say task force, it sounds awful. Yeah. But actually, this is a really interesting uh, piece of work on career progression, a task force on career progression. And what we're doing is we're trying to analyze thousands of position descriptions to articulate exactly what does an editorial assistant need? What is the sort of standard role? What is the skill set? And also, what paths could someone take uh, from an entry-level position sideways? And I think that's important. Like, you don't have to start as an editorial assistant to get into editorial. You could start as a rights and permissions assistant or business or marketing. And there are definite pathways that go between departments and also between presses. So we're trying to establish a much more um, clear career progression path from the moment that you enter the profession. Uh, and that should be coming out in, in the spring of 2023, a, a really interesting a tool and report for that. Okay, thank you very much. I'll put a link to that in the description uh, of this episode. Uh, what, one final question before I let you go. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. And, and this is the uh, the author question. I, I think many of our listeners would like to know, how do I approach, how do I approach EUP? And how do I pick one? Like, they, they, and, you know, the thing I should say, if you don't know, they, they really do have different, they, the, the, the term of art in, in publishing is lists. They have different kinds of lists. Like I happen to know the people at the, I think it's the University of Kansas are big on military history. I, I, I think, I, I can't really remember, but different presses will have different hot or heavy lists. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach University Press and how you pick one? Yeah, now I, I'm going to be a little bit of a broken record and point again to ask up, uh, okay. um, but uh, because that's got some very, very useful information on it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, lists are absolutely the core. And as we were talking at the start about smaller university presses, the focus is always a few different subject areas, not the whole spread. And then, of course, books with particular character often. So subject area and character overlap. And um, really identifying those presses is important. And on this site, Ask Up, there's actually a grid that will help you identify which university presses publish in your subject area. Yeah. And then, of course, they each have their own um, processes on their websites for what they want, which is usually very, very similar. But just <clears throat> really thinking about what they've published before, what their profile is, it's the number one way of making good choices and having a rewarding experience. Just saying, I'm approaching you because, mm -hmm. and then because of the list, you know, because of another book you saw, etc. that immediately gets the uh, approach uh, read. And I'm following the instructions that you provided on your website. Yeah, follow the instructions. It's important to follow the instructions. My experience has been having sent a bunch of proposals and a lot of emails to university presses is you need to get the attention of an editor who's actually interested in the project. And they will tell you whether they're interested or not. Uh, so you don't have to waste your time. But if they are, then they'll be willing to work with you. And they not, might not be the right press, but they'll send you to the person who is. You should talk to, oh, this person over here because she does that. Oh, 100%. That's a very special part of the uh, the, the the network of university presses that if if they, it's uh, in, in the UK, there used to be, um, you know, I don't know how to do this, but I know a man who can. Yeah, I mean, right. that was why, <laughs> yeah. it's absolutely that. It's, um, 
so, so that absolutely, absolutely, that sort of uh, uh, handover. And I will say, you know, one can sort of focus on how difficult it is to get published. But there's a real interest in university presses at the moment of not assuming that you know everything about how you you have the network, you're being referred by Professor X, who's very senior. Uh, university press editors extremely interested in voices, new voices, yeah. and hearing from uh, people at uh, outside institutions or in precarious positions, and ask up a lot of the, pro the, but the point there is just demystifying all of this, and you don't have to rely on your special network. No, if your you work is good, a university press will publish it. No, I, I'm publishing a book, I won't tell you with him or whatever, but I'm publishing a book with a press that I'd never worked with before, and I really didn't know anything about. <laughs> But I was handed off to them by various people like, oh, these people do that. OK, great. And then I've had a lovely experience so far. Um, Good. It's, I'll, I'll tell you who it is. It's Cambria Press. And they've been absolutely great. Um, yeah, I've, I've, it's been a very pleasant experience with them. Um, and, you know, then the other thing I, I, I would say is that I believe this sentence to be true. If you have written a good academic book, you will find a publisher. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah, it may take you a little while. You have to get in front of the right people and, and follow the rules. Uh, but you will find a publisher. And it may be a it may be a very, uh, you know, it may be a very surprising publisher. I mean, yeah, uh, well, it is with me. I didn't think about publishing this with Cambria, but then, you know, I had some nice interactions and there it was. <laughs> yeah, that relationship side is so important. Having that uh, good, good feeling when you deal with an individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure you're very busy. Thank you very much for taking yeah. time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. Um, let me tell everyone that we've been talking to Charles Watkinson. He's the head of the University of Michigan Press and is the president of the Association of University Presses. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.